0: All right, all right, all right. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday morning. It's great to see you today on this beautiful, warm December morning. It won't be warm tomorrow, but it's, it's going to be a beautiful day today. It's going to be a great afternoon for a run, don't you think, this afternoon? Amen. <laughs> Not a lot of amens, but I heard, heard a couple. Well, it's great to see you this morning. Great to greet you. In that powerful name, above all names, the name of Jesus, whose whose birth we recall, we commemorate, we celebrate. And we are right in the middle of the Christmas season right now as we move along toward the 25th of December. When all this craziness will finally slow down long enough for us to commemorate the coming of Jesus to earth, to... Uh, remember and to worship him at his birth as uh, we celebrate his birth and to spend some, some precious time with our families. This is what we look forward to. This is what we uh, long for and we, we get to do. In the meantime, our days are frantically filled with shopping, with planning, with parties, concerts, so many different activities. And so this is a very busy time of year for, for all of us. But, you know, there's one other thing that we often find ourselves doing during this season, and that is helping people who are in need. Helping people who are in need, whether it's through giving to a charitable, charitable organization or, or maybe designating a family or two that we know or that we know of. Uh, That could use a helping hand. Meeting the needs of others is often connected with the Christmas season. And so this kind of leads me to the big idea of this series that we're in right now. It's a series titled Till He Appeared. And our big idea for this series that we started last week is this. Christmas is about God meeting us at our deepest point of need. Christmas is about God meeting us at our deepest point of need. Now, we don't usually think about Christmas in that way, do we? We don't usually think about Christmas as God meeting us in our deepest point, uh, at our deepest point of need. We think of Christmas. When we think of Christmas, we think of the story, the biblical story of Christmas, Joseph and Mary. We think of the shepherds. We think of the magi. We think of angels. Uh, maybe, as I said, we think of helping others in their time of need. But we don't usually think of Christmas as God meeting us in our time of need at, and at our deepest point of need. But I, I want us to look back at a verse that we, we saw last week that really kind of is a foundation for what we're talking about. And it's uh, uh, taken from a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi, to the Philippians. And and he wrote in Philippians 4.19, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. And so, again, we don't usually think of this verse as a Christmas verse. But Paul is saying here that when we think When we think about Jesus, we should think about God meeting our needs. Now, certainly we know that that Paul was talking to the Philippians and was thanking them for for helping him financially, for their financial gifts, for being generous. And then he says, because of this, we know that God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. But the point remains that that God meets our, our needs through Jesus... And so that's what Paul is saying. Look, when you think about Jesus, think about God meeting your needs. And that started when Jesus came to earth. That started at Christmas because Jesus is the difference maker. So the title for this series, as I said to you last week, comes from the lyrics of a beautiful song, O Holy Night. And I think many of you are familiar with with those lyrics. We sang this song last week and we'll sing it again next week. Uh, But uh, there's a part in here that says long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. See, that's the difference till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And, And here's the hope for yonder breaks. A new and glorious morn. So before Jesus appeared, the world was in sin and there are pining. After He appeared, then there's value, there's worth in our lives. After He appeared, there's hope. After He appeared, there's joy. And there's looking forward to a new morning. Looking forward to a glorious morning. So before He appeared, we were pining. And I said to you last week that the word pining means to languish. Or to decline. The word pining means also to miss someone and to long for their return. And this is what sin does to us. Before Jesus appeared, the world was pining in sin and in error. Because this is what sin does. It makes us uh, to struggle. It makes us struggle in life. We, because of sin, languish and we decline. We go down. Uh, And and we long for something better. We pine for something better. But God says, I'm going to meet those needs in your life. And I'm going to do it through Jesus. Because Jesus appeared. And when he appeared, he he changed everything. and, And he continues to change everything. So last week we looked at the shepherds. And we learned that one of the needs that God meets in our lives is our need to be accepted. It's our need for acceptance and access. Acceptance by God and access into his presence. And by the way, if you missed that message, I, I encourage you to look it up. You can look it up on our website or on our portal. You can look it up on iTunes, Spotify. There's a few other uh, places, a few other platforms, podcast, uh, the Google podcast and others that you can find our messages. But uh, that's what we talked about last week. And today we're going to look at, at uh, the main characters of the Christmas story. After Jesus, of course, he is the main character. But after him is Joseph and Mary. We're going to talk about Joseph and Mary. because We're going to learn from them, specifically Joseph, about how God meets our needs. And so we're going to read in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. So you can um, follow along in your Bibles. You can also follow the notes on the YouVersion Bible app. Matthew Chapter 1, Mateo 1, para aquellos que están leyendo en español, Mateo I Matthew 1, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, Reading from the Gospel of Matthew of the Christmas story. And it's a beautiful reading, and Christmas has become a beautiful celebration. But you know, sometimes it's easy for, us, easy for us to forget that the first Christmas was actually filled with scandal. And not just any scandal, but it was marked with or marked by the juiciest kind of scandal a sex scandal. You know, there's people who just love the scandal and they love the, to read and to hear about the sex scandals. And so that's really what was going on here. And I, I want to focus today on a passage or on a phrase, single phrase in this passage that is very important to this story. Matthew says in verse 19 that Joseph was faithful to the law. He was faithful to the law. That phrase is a, a single word that in the original language is a single word that means to be just or to be righteous. The original language, the word in the original language is the word dikaios. Dikaios. Everybody say dikaios. Right. Dikaios. That word means just or righteous. So uh, what Matthew is saying here is that Joseph was dikaios. He was just and, or he was righteous. Some of the older translations will read that way. He was righteous. I know the... I believe it's the English Standard Version. that says he was, he was just. And uh, that's the way he's described. But more specifically, this word dikaios describes someone who is known for being faithful to the book of the law. Someone who is known for being faithful to the book of the law. That's why in the NIV it says, Joseph was faithful to the law. That phrase is one word, dikaios. Just, righteous, faithful to the law. So that's how he's described. And there's a, there's a word given to men like like Joseph. And it's a word that really comes from the Old Testament. And and that word is a word, Sadiq. Now, Sadiq is a title that was given to men like Joseph. Men who were just, men who were righteous, men who were faithful to the law. Sadiq was a title that was given to righteous men in the Jewish tradition. And what this means is that Joseph was known for his uncompromising obedience to the book of the law. His uncompromising obedience to the Torah. The first five books of what we now call the Old Testament. Whatever the book of the law said... Joseph would do he was obedient completely obedient as far as he could as much as he could to the book of the law he didn't eat unclean food because the the book of the law uh, forbade that he didn't mix with the wrong kind of people he didn't work on the sabbath he was a carpenter he wouldn't work in his shop on the sabbath he kept the sabbath so Joseph was a sadiq he was a sadiq. He was a righteous man, a just man, a man who obeyed the book of the law. And everybody in this village, lived in a small village, everybody in this village knew about Joseph. They would have known about him. They would have known what he was like. Nobody would invite Joseph over to their house to have ham and cheese sandwiches. They knew he wouldn't eat that because he was obedient to the law. They wouldn't invite him over to the house to mingle with prostitutes and tax collectors because he was just and righteous. And he wouldn't go there because it was forbidden by the book of the law. And people knew what he was like. They understood that. And people wanted to be like him. They wanted to be like him because he was a sadiq, And in that culture, a sadiq. Was really somebody important. They were really just somebody. People looked up to them. People admired them. People respected them. And that's what Joseph was. He was a Sadiq, just, righteous, obedient, and faithful to the law. But it turns out that now, at this point in time, Joseph was a Sadiq with a problem. And the problem was that he was engaged and his fiance was pregnant. And he wasn't the father. Now, when you're a Sadiq in a small village, now we know all about living in a small city, right? A small city at San Angelo is over 100,000 people, but it has a feel of a small town. And uh, we, our friend, Noe Reina, who just passed away this earlier this year, would come to visit often. And many of you... Uh, would see him here and we'd go out to eat and invariably I'd run into somebody I knew or Lillian would run into somebody she knows. It might be a former student or it, some colleagues or friends from church. And, and he would often say to us, you guys, you can't go out without meeting, without running into somebody you know. And coming, you know, he lived in Houston, coming from Houston, he wasn't used to that. That doesn't just happen in, in Houston. So, yeah, you know, small city. And we know how rumors and, and gossip works. How they work, rather, in small cities, right? Well, Joseph lived in a small village. And when you're a deacon, a small village, then the rumors start, the gossip starts, and people start talking. And that really creates a problem. And not only because of, of the talking, but also because, remember... Joseph, in his heart, he wants to obey the law and he's always lived in a, in a manner that he kept the law. He was just, he was righteous. And the Torah had some very clear instructions about what to do in his situation. When your entire reputation and identity revolves around, you know, being a Sadiq, then, you know, you do what the Torah says, then this is a, this is a real problem. This is a serious situation. In the Old Testament the penalty for unfaithfulness before marriage was stoning. So there there were there were other Sadiqs actually called Sadikim Sadikim plural of Sadiq that they would have told Joseph you need to stone her. We we all need to get together and stone her. But, you know, that that was in the Torah. And really, by this time, there was another portion of Scripture of the Torah from Deuteronomy that had kind of become the rule. The stoning still happened. Remember the the woman who was caught in adultery that was brought to Jesus and the men were ready. They had the rocks in their hands. They were ready to stone her. But there were also other ways to address this. And in fact, the stoning for unfaithfulness wasn't as common as it had been back in the Old Testament. Now, in in the time of Jesus. Now, based on a a teaching from Deuteronomy, now divorce was the rule. Divorce was the rule. So Joseph, as a just man, as a law-abiding man, he could have divorced her. He could have said, well, I don't want her to be stoned, but I will divorce her. Well... He had two ways of divorcing his wife at that time. And, and again, they were engaged, but that was, you know, that wasn't like our engagement nowadays. That was a, a lot more uh, legally established. And so he was like, she was like his wife. And so he, he could have said, I'm going to divorce her. And there were two ways to divorce someone in, in those days. Uh, one was to have a public accusation, have a public trial, and, and it would be a public trial, so she would be put to shame. She would have this shame, this disgrace upon her for the rest of her life. But the Bible says, Matthew writes, that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was unwilling to put her through a public disgrace. That means that he didn't want to divorce her publicly. So the other option was to divorce her privately privately with only instead of doing it publicly to do it before two witnesses he could have done it before two witnesses in a in a private quiet way and that's what he chose to do. He says I'm not going to have her stoned. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to divorce her publicly. I'm not going to put her to shame. I'm going to to do the alternative to have this private divorce before two witnesses and then I'll just walk away. Now so Joseph knew the Torah and the Torah, the book of the law, was painfully clear. And he knew the, the understanding the, of the law, the book of the law, of teaching of righteousness. And he knew that his reputation and his identity as a Sadiq were on the line. And, uh, and like I said, all his fellow Sadiqim would have reminded him that the sin must be publicly exposed and punished. So it was a serious situation. If, if Joseph married this girl, nobody would ever accept his account of what happened. They would say, an angel, really? An angel appeared? The Holy Spirit is a father? No, I don't think so. You know, so his life would be changed. He would never be invited to the home of other righteous men again. He might have lost business because who would want to do business with somebody like Joseph now? He would suffer financially. He would be shunned. He would never again be admired or respected as a lover of the Torah. So this this is a tension as he makes this decision. If he committed himself to this baby and, and to Mary, then he would do so at an enormous cost. An enormous sacrifice. His whole reputation, the work of a lifetime would be trashed. What would he do? Well, in verses 24 and 25, we read that. Joseph did two things. The first thing is he took Mary home. That was actually a legal step. When he took her home, it meant that Joseph completed the wedding ceremony and he publicly claimed her as his wife. So it's more than just, okay, let's let's go home and think about this. No, let's go home and we're going to be married now. Let's go home. That was a legal step. He's publicly saying, I'm taking her as my wife. That's why it says that he took her home as his wife. And then the Bible says that Joseph named the baby. He gave him the name Jesus. That too was a legal action. Because he's publicly claiming the baby as his own. Adopting the child as his own. He takes Mary home. And he gives the baby a name. Both legal steps. So now, legally, Joseph has tied His destiny to the lives of two stained reputations. Because not only Mary's reputation, but also Jesus, because he he was born, according to some people, as an illegitimate child. And even his reputation was stained. He did the one thing that a sadiq would never do. And now his days as a righteous man are over. Whatever the future holds for him, it's not going to be respectability from others. Not ever again. But that's a commitment that he made. As a result, he also was tied. He tied his destiny to their reputation. So he did it deliberately. He chose to do that. He was unwilling to expose Mary to public shame. So he exposed himself to that public shame and disgrace. You ever wonder why when Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, there was no room for them? Nobody opened up their home in Bethlehem. This was his hometown. He would have had many, many family or relatives in that hometown. I mean, I know that the Bible tells us the the place was crowded, but this is his town of origin. He had family there. He certainly had uncles and aunts and cousins, extended family. Are you going to tell me that nobody, nobody had room for Joseph and his wife? Or maybe they just didn't want... Joseph and his reputation and the family reputation messing up their reputation. So he's, he's facing this now. His, his uh, life has changed. And as I alluded to a while ago, even the baby, even Jesus, at the time, a, a, a newborn baby there in Bethlehem, lying in a manger. He was also the product of. Of this scandal. Because you think. As he was born. And then he went back. uh, Grew up in Nazareth. Do you think that. A tight knit religious community. Would let an illegitimate child join in. To play with their children. The Bible doesn't say this. But there are some historical documents. That indicate that when he was a child. Jesus was viewed as. Is that he's an illegitimate child. Parents didn't let him play with their kids. And uh, again, that's just other historical documents. But I think we we might get a glimpse of this in what we do read in the New Testament. In in Mark chapter 6, we read about how when Jesus started teaching, people were amazed with his teaching. They were impressed with his teaching. Of course, his his miracles, just claims about himself. And uh, even though people were amazed by that, the people of his hometown, the people that had seen him grow up, began to express a skepticism, a, skept, a skepticism, <laughs> I know where that came from, a skepticism about him. And, uh, you know, they didn't think a whole lot about this grown up Jesus because they knew his background. And so Mark 6 3 says that they asked, uh, they asked among themselves, Isn't this The carpenter, isn't this Mary's son? Now, in that culture, you would never, ever refer to a man in that manner. You would never say Jesus, a son of Mary. You would always say Jesus, a son of Joseph. You would always refer to a man as a son of his father. Even though Joseph might have been dead by this time, Jesus would have been known and should have been known as. Jesus bar Joseph, which means Jesus, the son of Joseph. That's just how it worked. It it worked that way. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. You know, it was all, you know, Judas, the son of whomever. They were all referred to by the son. To refer to a man, a man as a son of a woman was actually a harsh term. A harsh term. And, and, some, and I don't know if this is true, but I've heard some, some uh, preachers say that it was very very similar to a, a, a common phrase in our culture. And I won't say it, obviously I won't say it because it's, it's not appropriate to say. But it's, you talk about a son of a woman that is, uh, that is not thought of very highly. So to, to, for them to say, isn't this Mary's son? They were putting him down. They were saying, he's a son of this kind of woman. And so that's a really harsh expression. It's a painful way of talking about the condition of uh, of the way that Jesus was born. So Mark 6, 3 may reflect the fact that even decades later in their little village, Joseph and Mary still were dealing with this shame, with with this scandal. And uh, that wasn't what Joseph and Mary signed up for. When they chose to be obedient to God's plan. The nine months of Mary's pregnancy, you know, must have been miserable. I'm just saying because I've never been pregnant, but because I know that that's the way it is, especially as you get later, you know, toward the end of the pregnancy. And back in those days, they didn't have the convenience of the medical care and so on. And so it must have been miserable for, for Mary, uh, not just because of the actual pregnancy, but also because, I believe, of the public shaming. She began to show and reveal her condition. Can you imagine the public shaming they were dealing with? And quite honestly, both Joseph and Mary were, were being obedient to God's plan. But think about this. Until Jesus was, was born. until They had heard from the angel, both of them. And, and they believed God and they trusted God. And they were going forward with God's plan. But until Jesus was born and, and some things began to happen that... Uh, that comforted them some things began to happen that let them know that okay we're on the right track there might have been a little doubt about how things were going to work out for them during this nine-month period remember they they weren't just robots following God's plan mechanically they were human beings with real emotions and and Bethany mentioned this a while ago and uh, during our time of worship that Mary could have been dealing with confusion Imagine being in that situation, a young girl, maybe 14 years old. Um, Joseph might have dealt with a little bit of anger because he was human. Certainly, they were both dealing with the shame that was projected on them by the society. But then Jesus was born. But then Jesus appeared. And when Jesus appears, he removes the shame and he replaces it with honor and blessing. Because Christmas... Means that Jesus has come to remove the shame and disgrace and to replace them with honor and blessing. Because after Jesus was born... The shepherds show up with a fascinating story of an angel. And as we talked about last week, it was a warrior angel. And then a company of the heavenly host appeared, which literally means a company of the Lord's armies. Host means the Lord's army. So here's a company of the Lord's armies and an angel warrior with a message. And they had a message for for the shepherds. And the shepherds appear at the manger with this fascinating story of these angels Appearance and uh, of the message that the angel gave them about Jesus being the Messiah. And can you imagine that when all that happened, Mary's heart must have been comforted? Mary's heart was comforted and her faith was strengthened. And God honored Mary and Joseph when the shepherds appeared. And that was just a reminder to them. That they were on the right track in spite of the shame that they were dealing with. Not because of their own wrong. You know, sometimes we feel shame because of our sin. This was shame that was projected on them by those who didn't understand. And so when the shepherds came, Mary's heart was comforted and her faith was strengthened. And God honored them and blessed them when the shepherds appeared. And then later, a couple of years later, the magi show up at their house and they have this. Fascinating story of following a star that led them to Jesus and the Magi worshiped Jesus. They worshiped him and Mary's heart was comforted and her faith was strengthened as God honored Mary and Joseph and as God blessed them when the Magi appeared. Because Christmas means that Jesus has come to remove the shame and disgrace and to replace it with honor and blessing. And so maybe this is why we see that while he was on earth, Jesus had a heart for unrespected people and maybe unrespectable people. Maybe because he was raised in a family that had lost its respectability when he was born. Maybe one reason that Jesus had such compassion for women who were caught in in sin and adultery is that when he grew up, he knew, he began to understand what it was like for his mom and his father. And yet they had stuck to God's plan. Joseph had stuck to Mary when she was single and pregnant and all the righteous folk, all the sadikim would have talked about them would have picked up a stone but Jesus knew that and he he identified with the outcast because he in a sense was one and so he understands and when he appeared he changed everything and so God's desire for us is that we would not be inflicted by the shame that Satan wants us to feel. Now there's nothing wrong with being ashamed of our sin. And asking. And in fact that's not only nothing wrong. But we should feel shame for our sin. And ask God to forgive us. But I'm talking about the, the shame that Satan wants us to feel. I, I'm talking about the condemnation that he wants us to live with. And when we struggle with problems, when we struggle with our lives, and when we even have scandals in our lives, Satan whispers to us and says, you know, you're condemned. Nobody will ever respect you anymore. Your life will never be the same. But God wants us to know that because Jesus came, he can remove our shame and our disgrace. He can lift us up in honor. We can live in confidence. I love Psalm 3, where the psalmist writes this, "O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Have you ever been there? Where you feel like everything is against you, and you feel like people are talking about you. And they might be. They might be saying, there's no answer for him. There's no answer for her. Her life is messed up. His life is messed up. And and it'll be that way forever. There is no salvation for, man, for him and God. Not even God can help him. Some may say. But look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory. And I love this. And the lifter of my head. My glory and the lifter of my head. God is our glory. We don't have to be swallowed up by our shame he is our glory we can have confidence in him we can boast in him and he lifts up he lifts up our head or our heads when we feel down when we when we just feel depressed and we feel like we're not going to make it. God says, I'm going to lift up your head because you have a great future ahead of you. I will remove your shame and your disgrace. Jesus came to remind us that God is the lifter of our heads. He lifts our heads out of the shame and despair that we experience when we, when we don't have Jesus in our lives. Or, or even after we are in Christ, but the enemy wants to attack and confuse us. He wants us to despair. So Christmas is about Jesus replacing your shame with honor and your disgrace with blessing. Christmas is a reminder that God is your glory and the lifter of your head. Isaiah 50 verse 7 says, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. I will not be disgraced. I want you to say that with me. I will not be disgraced. Say it again. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. What a powerful reminder that we can live confidently. I will set my face like a flint. I will live confidently because I know that God is on my side, and I will not be put to shame. This is what Jesus came, came to do. But He wants us to, to persevere in this. He wants us to, to live not in shame and disgrace, but He wants us to live in confidence in Him because we look to Him for help. Because He came the first time, because He came the first time, we know that He came to remove our shame and disgrace but he wants us to continue because when he comes again, the Bible says, and Paul writes, when Jesus returns, will he find us living confidently or will he find us living in shame? See, that's a succ- that's a distinction. When Jesus comes, will we be living confidently trusting in God or will we still be living in shame and disgrace? Because we never took advantage of what Jesus came to do. So today, don't don't let the enemy of your soul lie to you. Don't believe the lies of a society that would shame you because of past sins. Look to Jesus who changes everything. That's what Christmas is about. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we conclude and as we approach Jesus in worship. But uh, first, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and the lessons that we continue to learn and, and find in it. Father, I know that we have an enemy who would love to condemn us. That's his work. That's his job, to shame us, to slander us, to condemn us. But your word tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus came to remove the condemnation. He came to remove the shame and the disgrace. And so now, Father, we turn to you. We turn to you in worship And we turn to you for help as the prophet Isaiah wrote. Because when you help us, we are not disgraced. When you help us, we are not put to shame. So Father, we turn to you right now. And I I ask, Lord, if somebody is watching this or listening to this. And their life has been filled with condemnation. They feel lost. They feel ashamed because of their past sins. They feel the disgrace of living without you. I pray that they would know that you love them and that Christmas is about you sending your son to remove that shame and disgrace, that condemnation. That they would turn to you right now, Father, and say, Lord, forgive my sins. Fill my life with joy. Give me the hope that I need to know that things are going to get better and things in my life will turn around as I trust in you. I can live with confidence. I can set my face like a flint because I trust you and I look to you. You are our God. You are our Savior. You are our defender. And we turn to you right now, Father. In Jesus' name.